0: Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andre, being joined by Orion. Uh, Folks, as you know, we've been covering the Russia-Ukraine war uh, for the past few days, and uh, we've certainly heard a lot of news coverage on the conventional war so far. We've heard a little bit about those uh, implicit nuclear threats that have been levied by President Vladimir Putin. But Certainly, cyber warfare plays a big role in what we're seeing. We've seen some news stories on it, but certainly it's not being as covered. But we do know Russia is a very prominent cyber actor. So we really wanted to dissect the cyber warfare in the context of Russia, Ukraine and the United States, of course, so, we uh, are being joined by former NSA director and former US uh, commander of the US cyber forces, Admiral Mike Rogers. Uh, Admiral Rogers served in those positions between 2014 and 2018 and had a 37 year career in the U.S. Navy. Admiral Rogers was also one of our first guests on the Burn Bag Podcast in summer 2020. Uh, We really appreciated his support then and we certainly appreciate his support now and his willingness to come and join us on such short notice. So Admiral Rogers, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, How are you doing today? Oh, very good. Andre,
1: please call me Mike and please, I I love the work that the Burn Bag Podcast is doing and I'm honored to uh, be a part of it.
0: Sure thing. So. I guess, what are your first reactions to the Russia-Ukraine conflict? What are, what are your gut reactions so far?
1: So first, I think people are surprised that perhaps the cyber and the disinformation piece was not quite as aggressive up front as I think many people thought. My sense is personally that was because Putin um, felt that he could achieve his objectives in the Ukraine without a significant cyber element. Plus, I think his view was he wanted to keep this focus very confined to the Ukraine, didn't want to escalate it. It's interesting now, we're, you know, depending on what metric you want to use, we're four or five days into this now. I think clearly he is behind timeline now in terms of his physical ground operation in the Ukraine. He has failed to achieve the territory um, acquisition objectives that he had hoped for. So, I take two things from that. Number one, you're going to see him double down on more capacity, more force. It's going to get a lot messier. You'll see him use firepower much more aggressively. Infrastructure, I don't think he's going to care about damage, and he's going to throw more forces. And you can already see, you know, commercial imagery is showing he's got more Belarusian and Russian forces coming in along multiple axes. So that's going to play out. The second component of this to me is because he is behind timeline, because he underestimated both the capacity as well as the determination and, quite frankly, courage of the Ukrainians in physically contesting his invasion on the ground. I think, and the fact that the sanctions clearly, I think, have been much far, more far ranging than he had thought, have had a much greater impact. I mean, look, the ruble's already devaluated by 30% in a day. They could not open their financial exchanges today because they were concerned of meltdowns, so they've locked them down to preclude any significant commercial activities. You look at the lines of people in banks today in Russia who are trying to pull their money out and hopefully convert it into a different currency besides the ruble because the ruble has become so devaluated. You look at the protests that have erupted in Russia, and I'm not going to argue they're massive, but he's got people demonstrating, you know, on the streets in major urban areas. And quite frankly, I don't think he expected any of that to happen. So given all that, I think one of the implications that I am looking for is, does he, I think he's trying to figure out what are the tools I have to potentially put more pressure on the West to back off. I think you saw the first card play out in the last 24 hours where he talked about putting his nuclear and strategic deterrent forces on higher alert. I think that was designed to remind the West, look, I've got a broad set of capabilities here and you need to be mindful of that. You don't want this to get out of control. But I also think he's gonna be looking at cyber and the disinformation pieces much more aggressively in the coming days and weeks. I really think you're gonna see him start to turn to them now. Because, quite frankly, he has got to find a way to put pressure on the US and the broader alliance, NATO, EU, and other nations. I mean, if you're sitting in Berlin today, you have had the Germans announce that they are going to inject $100 billion into defense spending in this year alone, that they are immediately going to go to the 2.0% of GDP level that the Germans have been trying to get to for eight years since 2014. Um, And you've seen Switzerland, for example, acknowledge that they are going to impose sanctions. And don't think that the oligarchs are thinking about, I put a lot of my money in Switzerland, and now in part because I always thought they would be neutral and stay out. Now I look at a Switzerland that they are indicating, hey, look, this conduct is so egregious, the Russian invasion, so beyond the, the norms and the rule of law, the the Swiss are indicating, look, we won't support this. And in fact, we are prepared to take steps designed to impose pain as a view to get you to back off, to leave the Ukraine. So I, I think, you know, he is, he, Putin is trying to figure out what tools do I have to potentially create pressure in the West to get them to back off? What tools do I have, but to potentially energize the domestic populations in the U.S. and in the sanctioned nations to protest and impose you know, argue with their own governments, hey, look, the, the price of this isn't worth it for us. We should back off. Um, it, it'll be really interesting to watch how this unfolds in the coming weeks and days.
2: So, Mike, let's go ahead and talk about the tools that Putin has at his disposal, and in particular, the cyber tools, because Russia, as Andre kind of set up at the top, uh, has used cyber tools, cyber weapons for years against a variety of actors, Ukraine particularly. Um, uh, for I mean the better half of like a decade, um, but also against the United States. And so, before we talk about what might be used against Ukraine, what are the tools at Putin's disposal, and what and how could the Russian military react from the cyber front? So let's first
1: look at the kinds of activity we have seen historically out of the Russians with respect to cyber. We have seen them use denial of service techniques to preclude the effective operation of websites. To preclude people's individual in the, in, to preclude people's ability to access networks, information, data, money—you know, their financial structure—we have seen them use cyber as a tool to attempt to cause pain within the. You, can, you look at NotPetya, you look at some of the events. We've seen three major sequences of cyber events play out in the Ukraine that we believe originated from the Russians in the course of the last five weeks. They targeted Russian, they targeted the Russians, targeted Ukrainian government websites, military websites, banks, denial of service, ransomware. Um, You have seen criminal groups use ransomware against economic targets in the West as a way to generate revenue. You have seen the Russians use cyber as a tool historically to penetrate critical infrastructure in the United States to study it, to map it, if you will, with a view that potentially they might choose to put it at risk in some form of crisis or confrontation. So they have shown a pretty broad set of capabilities historically. They've also shown a willingness to engage in activities that, quite frankly, look at NotPetya for example. The target was theoretically systems within the Ukraine, but because they used a supply chain attack that quite frankly, open it up to a much broader set of users well outside the Ukraine, they ended up triggering a global impact. So they have shown a willingness to quite frankly, not necessarily be very precise or targeted in their cyber acts. As I look to the future, what is in the realm of possibility, it is all those things, but I would also argue, you would see them, I believe, also looking at in the coming days Can we use cyber as a tool to degrade um, or destroy or deny access to functionality? Um, So it's interesting. You've seen criminal actors penetrate systems, upload malware designed to encrypt or lock down their data and some of their OT infrastructure with the purpose of generating revenue. What if the Russians now decide we're going to penetrate networks, we're going to upload malware, we're going to lock down... Um, data, operating technology, infrastructure, industrial control systems, and we don't care about ransom. we're not doing this for money We're, we're doing this to create a measure of pain with a view that this will lead to a political calculation that perhaps the price of these sanctions is higher than the West thinks they are. So I, I just look for a, a application of cyber with not only what we've seen but perhaps with additional focus on Can I degrade or deny functionality in the West? Can I potentially destroy or damage some parts of infrastructure? Now, having said all that, remember, I don't think anyone, Russia, the United States, the West as a whole, I don't think anyone wants to get into a war in cyber. And so I believe that there will still, at least initially, be a desire, if I look at it from a Russian perspective. I wanna use cyber as a way to create pain, to create political impact, to potentially change the calculation of the price that the West is gonna to have to pay you know, to get me to leave the Ukraine. But I think that I hope, and I believe at least initially the Russians were also thinking. but on the other hand, I don't wanna trigger a cyber war and i think you're definitely going to see that from a us and a western perspective look the us is assessing right now what are its options in cyber clearly the focus will be on the defensive side but i think it's also fair to say if i was in my old jobs i would be talking to the senior leadership of our nation about you know if we had to what you know kind of offensive or effects based operations could we use in cyber as a way to send a broader political message to the Russians, as a way to remind them that the U.S. has more capabilities than just the economic tools that it has chosen to use
0: so far. So when we talk about not wanting a war in cyber, I think certainly we'd want to sort of uh, evaluate what exactly a war in cyber would look like. So of course, you know, there's certainly critical infrastructure attacks and so on. But uh, one question I want to ask before that is that I guess a lot of us in the government of the United States, perhaps in the government of Ukraine, there's a lot of reliance on contractors, non-governmental companies, and so on. I mean, certainly supply chains are one of the biggest side channels of attacks that may exist. What potential for cyber attacks are, is there that could certainly cripple those supply chains that would sort of help bolster national security, not only in the United States, but in Ukraine more immediately.
1: So, when you're looking at executing offensive cyber operations or effect-based operations, as we often would refer to them in the US within the DoD, you're looking at the target itself. So you're you're assessing and you're looking at the target broadly from three perspectives. The first, you're trying to understand that the nature of the network structure, its cybersecurity features, and how you might bypass them. Secondly, you're looking at the human dimensional of all of this. Who has access to this network, and who can I access or potentially impact that might give me give me a way to then access the, the target network? The third, to your point, is so. What are the, what's the supply chain? What are the affiliated contractors and external entities that also have access to my primary target network structure, and can I manipulate or go after them? and then have an effect, if you will, against, the, against the, the primary target. So you're always trying to look at it as a series of very interconnected ecosystems. And there's multiple ways to impact the primary target. It doesn't always have to be directly. Um, and so I would fully expect that the Russians are considering that. You've already seen some reporting. I, I've seen some reporting about Toyota and some potential suppliers already, for example, looking at potential cyber activity directed against some of their suppliers. Again, it's a first report, so we'll have to see. But I definitely think those are among the kinds of tools as the as the the Russians are thinking about how do they want to actually apply their cyber capabilities. They will look at it much more broadly. Like I said, they'll look at it as a series of interconnected ecosystems as they're trying to choose targets and the ways that they want to manipulate or affect those
2: targets. So when we talk about targets, and Andre set this up, critical infrastructure. Uh, is quite terrifying because that could lead to mass civilian death because critical infrastructure not only is crucial for the military and the government to operate, but certainly to keep countries afloat. Um, That's why they're called critical infrastructures. Uh, But I think for the benefit of our, for those listening, could you kind of walk us through what is considered critical infrastructure, why critical infrastructure um, is so important and why it could be a target uh, by the Russian military, but also when we flip it around, how can the Ukrainian government's military protect critical infrastructure, not only alone, but also with maybe NATO or other allied uh, assistance?
1: So the government has defined 17 segments in the private sector as, quote, critical infrastructure. And generally, you know, we use the definition, critical infrastructure is that portion of the private sector in which if we were to receive... Significant degradation, significant destruction, significant impediment of operations through cyber. In this case, we're talking about the cyber prism as the vehicle to affect this critical infrastructure. The impacts would have significant economic, national security, or safety and well-being impacts on the United States. That generally was the broad definition that we used to both identify and define critical infrastructure. So, in those seventeen segments, think about uh, healthcare. Think about uh, energy, just think about the electrical power grid, think about energy pipeline transportation, think about the financial sector, think about the election sector, think about the financial infrastructure of the nation. Again, think about the impact we would have if those were significantly degraded or access to those services were denied. Um, You know, again, what I I think critical infrastructure is an attractive target. Now, one of the questions gets to be, so what is the impact you want? Are are you talking about outright destruction? Are you talking about some period of degradation or denial? Uh, Again, you need to be very specific here because, you know, were I the Russians, for example, I I would be a little concerned about what the Americans might do. For example, if I decided, you know, I'm going to try to take down, uh, I'm going to try to destroy through the use of software, I'm going to try to destroy the power grid, actually. On the other hand, I think they might say to themselves, well, what if I was able to degrade it in high population concentrations, and I, for example, was able to shut down power for small periods of time, just to remind the Americans, you know, I could do more if I wanted to. And also with a view to the American public, you know, there's a price that you as an individual are going to pay for the actions of your government. Are you sure that you're comfortable with that price? Perhaps maybe you want to put pressure on your government to say, you know, I I fully support the Ukrainians. And I think what the Russians have done is terrible. On the other hand, I I don't want to lose my power over it. You know, perhaps do we need to back off? Those are the kinds of things that, you know, again, if you're a Policy individual innovation that you tend to think about within the realm of the possible. From a US perspective, we were always mindful. Whatever we did, it had to be very precise. Well, I remember when Not Petya occurred, I thought to myself if if that had occurred when I was in my two old jobs, we we would have had authority stripped away from us and and I would be looking for new jobs. I I wouldn't be, you know, I would have been fired um, because we would have never allowed, we would have never done an operation in which we felt that there was a high potential for that kind of impact. So in the US we always try to be very measured, very precise and we're always concerned about potential for escalation. So we always think about that as we're trying to figure out what uh, what's the range of options we should consider with respect to cyber. You mentioned the defensive side of cyber. Look, we have been working with the Ukrainians for some time that started when I was at Cyber Command for example, it continues today and they've taken it up to a whole number level. We, as well as the broader NATO Alliance, we're trying to provide knowledge, expertise. We're trying to help the Ukrainians strengthen the cybersecurity of their um, networks and operating systems. We were trying to help them understand resilience and how you could create a more resilient structure, processes and culture, if you will, with respect to cybersecurity. Those continue, it, it was interesting, in the immediate aftermath, of, in, in this buildup to what ultimately became the Russian invasion, you saw several times the US and other nations talking about how we were going to provide, and are providing, increased cybersecurity capacity and capability to the Ukrainians. You know, the focus has been on sanctions in the last several days. But um, getting less attention, but still a visible, very significant part of the U.S. and NATO and EU strategy is to ensure both the Ukraine as well as the U.S. and the alliance is working hard to increase their resilience, to increase the level of cybersecurity resident within our systems.
0: So you do bring up many good points, especially about that fear of escalation, because, I mean, retaliation in the cyber domain has been discussed quite extensively. And I guess there's not too much consensus on what proper retaliation would look like for a certain uh, stages and levels of attacks. Uh, and, and certainly with, with regards to NATO, I mean, last year, NATO actually broadened Article 5 uh, in terms of cyber, and the NATO Secretary General recently said that cyber attacks could, in fact, actually trigger Article 5, an attack on one being an attack on all. So I guess... Additionally, we just saw a cyber attack on NVIDIA, actually, the tech company, which is a U.S.-based company. Uh, What would proportionate retaliation in this domain look like during wartime? And I guess, what are your thoughts on the whole NATO situation with regards to, because that would be massive escalation. And is an attack on that private company like NVIDIA, would that constitute a need for retaliation?
1: So, a lot of questions here.
0: So, first, I, I would
1: argue the alliance has indicated that cyber, as you said, potentially meets the threshold for triggering Article 5, the mutual self defense, an attack against one is an attack against all. But the alliance has also said that determination will be made based on the specifics of an event or activities. So, there's no predetermined, well, if you hit this threshold, you have some. This amount of monetary damage, this kind of specific target. The alliance has always said, as has the the US, look, we will look at each situation on a case-by-case basis and make a specific determination. Uh, The second point I would make is remember, a response to a cyber event does not necessarily have to be cyber in priority or focus. You know, a lot of times I and others, when I was in government, would argue look, as we're looking at how are we going to respond to cyber events of concern, we need to remember that we want to consider the full range of capabilities that we enjoy as a nation, not just cyber, but the economic capabilities we have, the informational, the political, the military kinds of capacities and capabilities we have. Look, just because they come at us in cyber doesn't mean we have to knee-jerk and automatically respond. Secondly, you're also thinking to yourself, Okay, let's say they went after, in this case, um, let's assume, and it is an assumption, so we got to wait and see over time if it proves to be accurate or factually correct. Um, let's assume we see them going, the Russians using cyber against Western companies. A lot of the times, then we start to ask questions okay, what was the impact? What was the nature of the target or effect? Was this a temporary disruption? Was this physical dis- disruption? Was this against a private sector entity that has potential life and death implications for our citizens? You know, it's a healthcare provider in the middle of a, of a pandemic. It's associated with power. Hey, we don't want to lose power to our ho- hospitals, healthcare, emergency service, etc. So we'll look at it on a case-by-case basis. I just always remind people, look, I know we love to talk in broad, really simple things. Cyber is just not, it doesn't lend itself well.
2: So I'm kind of curious about the role of non-state actors here, because while we have Russia and Ukraine and all the other related countries like the U.S. and NATO countries, uh, cyber is not only employed by state actors. There's a lot of non-state actors, individuals, groups, and so Uh, I've been kind of tracking the work of Anonymous recently and some other maybe pro-Ukrainian groups that are trying to do work and hacking basically for Ukraine. Of course, there are Russians doing the same thing um, and Russian-linked groups, whether they're paid or maybe they're pro-Russian, that are doing the same exact thing. And so how does this non-state actor kind of play in to a war like this? And is there a way in which, both from an offensive and defensive side, you can maybe silo it to kind of prevent the, the impact? So first, I
1: think that's one of the most interesting dimensions within cyber in the conflict we've seen to date. For the first time in a kinetic contact, in a kinetic conflict, you are seeing the primary parties, Russia and the Ukraine, turn to third party groups in cyber. Patriotic hackers, both the Ukraine has announced they are doing this as well as the Russia. In addition, as you've said, you've seen third party actors, in this case, Anonymous is a good example, who have decided that they feel strongly enough about what is going on, that they want to use cyber as a tool to convey their disagreement, disapproval of the actions of one of the parties, in this case, the Russian. Um, Never seen that before in the context of a conflict. So I, I really do believe in many ways the Ukraine crisis will prove to be a very historic and watershed event in the history of cyber and cyber warfare. You're really seeing some things play out for the first time that we haven't seen before. So as you're looking, given that third-party activity, and one other point, watch to see, particularly on the part of the Russians, if they start to look to use third-party surrogates, think about criminal groups in particular, as surrogates, For the execution of cyber activities in this crisis against the US and the West with a view that the Russians can then say, hey, you can't hold us accountable. We didn't do it. Um, Watch how that plays out. Now, in terms of how do you react? Can you try to silo it? um, This gets to be really challenging. The US, for example, has argued with the Russians for some periods of time. Hey, look, the criminal actors within your sovereign state that are engaged in ransomware efforts against US and allied nations, both in terms of government infrastructure, as well as predominantly private infrastructure, we think that's totally unacceptable. And We believe you have a responsibility to help deal with it. What was the Russian response? We're not connected with it. You can't prove anything do you control all the crime in your country? Uh, you, you can't hold this accountable here. So it's interesting to me, the Russians rejected that concept that they should be held accountable in some ways for the actions of third parties who are acting against the US and Europe from their own sovereign territory. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out with this dynamic. So the idea of siloing this or stovepiping. I'm not sure that's going to work well. I, I just think the parties in general, at least offensive. Now, defensively, it's it's a little different kettle of fish, so to speak. There is not concerns generally, unless you really get into active defense and what's the difference between active defense and kind of offensive activities in cyber. But broadly, you know, efforts to address or improve cybersecurity to increase cyber resilience I, I don't think anybody's going to view those as escalatory. I don't think anybody is going to view, hey, actions within those arenas by private entities are somehow destabilizing. I, I don't see that. Um, the offensive side, though, no, that could be another matter. We're going to have to see how that plays out.
0: So you mentioned earlier that uh, the United States, uh, during your leadership in NSA and cybercom and under uh, adm- uh, under the current leadership uh, has been you know having partnerships with ukraine on those cyber capabilities uh, nato also said that they would provide support in terms of cyber to ukraine but i guess for a lot of our listeners right we hear cyber 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 uh you know giving a country fighter jets or guns or grenades to our audience feels a lot more tangible than this to them this abstract notion of cyber so what Actually, and obviously you can't tell us all the things, but, uh, but what would those services, what would those products, what would those cyber weapons necessarily look like? Are we providing people? Are we providing-
1: programs? And again,
0: we're talking to the defensive side, so don't use the phrase cyber weapons. Sure.
1: What, what you're talking on the cybersecurity and cyber resilience piece is, for example, the deployment of small teams with monitoring capabilities, with extensive expertise, you send small teams forward, they partner with their uh, Ukrainian counterparts, they take a look at specific networks, constructs, data concentrations, uh, software tools currently being used, and they try to train also individuals in the techniques associated with cybersecurity and cyber resilience. In addition, you will often provide Um, The Ukrainians with software tools designed to help them increase their situational awareness of their networks and what's going on. You'll provide them with tools that are designed to increase the security of their networks. You'll share information with them about, in this case, Russian actors, who they are, how they operate, what in the military we call their TTPs, their tactics, techniques, and procedures. Hey, here's how the Russians are actually going to work. Here's what their Viper malware is going to look like. This is the way they'll scan your networks. These are the things to look for when you, as they penetrate. This is how they'll tend to move once they're in your network structure. You, you share those kinds of insight. That's what assistance in cyber looks like from a cybersecurity or cyber resilience standpoint. I, I would highlight you have not seen any public description, nor would I, I, I think that we would likely do this that the U.S. or NATO would provide cyber offensive capability to the Ukrainians. I just don't see that happening. I mean, we always, I'll only speak for the U.S., we have always opted to keep our offensive cyber capabilities on very tight control. And they are capacities or weapons that we ourselves would execute. We don't use third parties to do it, you know, um, because we want to be very measured and very specific, and we want a level of control here. We understand that there are significant implications associated with the use of cyber weapons or cyber offensive capability. and As a result, while we might share ordnance, bombs, missiles, weapon systems with uh, allies and friends, in generally, you don't see that in offensive cyber. Now, that may change over time, but I don't see that changing right now.
2: So if we set aside for a moment the kind of offensive, defensive aspect of this war and just kind of look to how the internet is playing a significant role, and I'd say almost as important as the actual more conventional um, parts of this conflict, Um, Russia could very well attempt to completely shut off the internet in Ukraine. And that has a lot of different implications. Not only does that kind of limit communication, but also has impacts on recording and reporting on what's occurring inside Ukraine as far as the conflict, right? How, how are things progressing? Where are Russian troops moving? All that stuff, I mean, open source information has been invaluable uh, in this conflict. And so um, one, could Russia shut off the internet of Ukraine, right? Could they limit the ability of Ukrainians to post to social media, to text each other for the Ukrainian military to communicate with one another? Um, and if they do end up doing something like that, are there alternatives? I know that Elon Musk's and his Starlink Um, satellite-based internet is a potential solution, but is that one that's actually a meaningful one? Could that be kind of taken down? So the ability to to cut or
1: stop internet activity across an entire nation the size of the Ukraine is probably a challenge. But can you do that in specific locations and specific areas for a specific or extended period of times? Yes. Now, you can do that multiple ways. You can use cyber and software tools to do it. frankly, you can use a kinetic tool. If you decide you want to bomb the, the, the servers and the network switches associated with the internet structure in Kiev, for example, or a major population center, you can do that. The Russians are now in that kinetic environment. So I remind people, look, there's multiple ways to degrade internet structure or to deny its use from very traditional kinetic to cyber and software kinds of capabilities. In addition, I remind people, look, the internet is a significant backbone for the flow of information and connectivity, but it's not the only one. You know, there is Wi-Fi and the cellular um, component to all this. There is, SatLink sat- as an example. There are space-based satellite born capabilities that you can use. The challenge is those get to be hard to replicate on a national scale, um, and again, depending on the the capacity of the network structure, you know, suddenly if everybody starts shifting from their traditional fiber or land based, you know, internet connection to, Hey, we're, we're, we're going to do everything, try to do everything on, on, on fi uh, A lot of structures aren't really built for that. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of trade-offs
0: here. So we Talked about escalation earlier, and I sort of want to return to that because I guess throughout history we've seen sort of three, quote unquote, revolutions for the lack of a better word in the types of warfare and how that type of warfare has played into strategy. I guess the industrial revolution uh, played into the difference in war fighting strategy in the 19th and the 20th centuries. Certainly, nuclear warfare uh the the, the uh, presence of nuclear weapons has changed how military strategy has gone on and now cyber cyber warfare cyber technology cyber capabilities has certainly played into how we think about military strategy and as we said mentioned before this conflict might be one of the first in which we're really seeing these cyber capabilities somewhat deployed but i guess uh, my question is uh have we sort of seen the worst, I guess, in terms of cyber weapons, cyber capabilities, or? So the short answer is no. Okay. Okay.
1: It could get much worse. Um, That's where the escalation peak. Generally, escalation is driven by does the recipient of the action you choose, do they believe that that action places them at greater risk? Does it, increase the level of uncertainty or instability for them. Because look, if you're, a, if you're Putin, you, you want a sense of stability, you want a sense of control. You don't want to see significant additional damage. So you're asking when you see cyber actions, for example, but I would argue escalation really applies to any act. You know, the calculus is in doing this, am I increasing impact or pain to an unacceptable level? Am I increasing the risk or probability that the other side feels they have to respond? In executing this set of actions, whatever they are, do I lead the, the potential targets to believe that now they're losing sight of what's going on, they don't understand, it, injecting more uncertainty? Um, that, that, those are the kinds of pressures when you think about what causes escalation. What causes people, not necessarily nations, to respond not necessarily in kind, but feel they have to reply at a stronger level, at a greater level of of, that inflicts more pain on the initiators? Those are the kinds of things that you think about. Now, the way that you'll see this play itself out, um, for example, the stated objective from the United States and NATO for the actions that have been taken to date. Is to force the Russians to withdraw their forces from the UK, Ukraine, and to respect the sovereignty of the Ukrainian state. Even as NATO and the US have said, look, if you want to have a broader discussion about what security in your border areas looks like, what security in Eastern Europe looks like, we're we are willing to have those conversations. We're, we're not going to have any pre-agreements going in, we're not going to place constraints. We are willing to talk and we are willing to listen. That doesn't mean we're going to agree, but willing to talk and willing to listen. It would be a very different scenario, for example, if we said to ourselves, you know what our objective here is? We are not only are going to restore Ukraine as a nation and drive the Russians out, but we're going to get into regime change. And the long-term political objective is that Putin is no longer, you know, the head of the Russian nation. That would be a totally different set of things. Now, very important, we have not, not ever said that. I don't think we've ever contemplated that. Um, but one of the challenges you find in warfare is once the dragon is out, is loose, loosened, it can be awful hard to control. And so we'll see how all this, in terms of escalation, and in terms of long-term objectives, um, and it's interesting, for example, I love history. You saw this in some ways play out, for example, when Saddam Hussein in August of 1990 invaded Kuwait. Our stated political objective and the one that was we created this coalition around was we will drive the, Iraq, the Iraqi military out of Kuwait. We will restore the territorial integrity of Kuwait, and we will ensure that the Kuwaiti government is back in place. We did not say, and remember the discussion we had. We did not say at the time, we want to remove Saddam Hussein from power. You know, we said, look, that's not the objective, that's not what we built this coalition around. That would be, you know, too far. And quite frankly, we are concerned about the implications of you know, how that might escalate if we were to state that as an objective. So again, history tends to repeat itself. Watch how the discussion about objectives and desire to end states. Does that change? Does it say the same? And I'm not arguing it should change. Don't get me wrong. That's not my point. But, you know, once you start this thing, I mean, I think the Russians, and I think if we're honest, even the West thought that, okay, if the Russians decide they're going to invade three to five days, and probably the Russians will have managed to exert physical control over most of the Ukrainian territory. Well, we're coming up on the five day. And clearly, the Russians are off timeline, off schedule. They did not, this did not work as well as they thought. And so, you know, we'll see how does this change their calculus? How does this potentially change their desire in the state? Does this lead them to believe, for example, you know, it was tough enough potentially to gain control if they're able to do that? Does this lead them to believe, you know, the ability for us to actually leave a military force in place within Ukrainian territory for an extended ter- period of time? Boy, if if we've had this much fight just getting in, what are they going to do to us if we decide we're going to stay for an extended period? I mean, think about an insur- insurgency that has both a very traditional kinetic component to it—the use of explosive conventional weapons—but think about an insurgency that also look at the cyber capacities that that Ukraine has within not just its government, but within broadly its its broader population. Think about what a cyber insurgency looks like. Again, that's one of the reasons why I say this situation, I think, is really going to be significant in the history of cyber warfare as we develop, because it's really going to be one of the first times you are going to see cyber play out in so many different ways as not just a supporting element of this conflict, but potentially over time as an increasingly significant element of operation or activity or focus.
2: You know, I'm also a lover of history and something that you see time and time again is psyops, psychological operations, informational warfare, which of, of course has changed over history and time. But in this conflict in particular, uh, I think the use by both sides of, of information, of social media, of reporting, photos, videos, etc., that has at least to me had a significant impact. And
1: uh, I apologize. I didn't mean to interrupt you.
2: No, no. It, I mean, it's it, it's I'll, I'll stop the question. I'm very curious on on your on your response to this, because um, we don't know what's true and what's not true. Right. We, we only hear what we're getting from both sides, as well as whatever other countries or individuals are willing to report, as that could be for movements of individuals, could be for casualty numbers could be for how successful the Ukrainians are in repelling the attack versus how successful the Russians are in taking certain areas. And so I guess the first part of this is, is this, is the component of this conflict informational? Is there a huge informational warfare part of this? And two, um, what impact does that have on the broader conflict? And of course, speaking to kind of your experiences, does this have a, a meaningful or maybe determinative impact on wars? So first of all, it has a significant component. Secondly,
1: let me disagree a little bit Ryan. There are ways to use technology to verify some fundamental facts as accurate interactions. So for example, you look at the metadata of a report that's hosted that shows video in which the narrative is, and today, massive numbers of buses, you know, are, are moving Russian ethnic individuals out of the Don regions in the Ukraine because their lives are being threatened by Ukrainian citizens. Well, the metadata will show you, the video was shot two days beforehand. So there are some technical things here that you can use to help determine the basic accuracy of some of the facts being presented, not everything necessarily. And you've seen that really come out. It is interesting to me. You're watching media organizations really bore into the metadata know, kind of technical aspects of some information reporting via social media in a way, you know, I, I don't remember, go back to the 2016 election, for example, where you saw the Russians use disinformation, social media and other capabilities. I don't ever remember news reports about the metadata accuracy of, of what was being supposedly, um, you know, revealed or shown in, in the social media reporting. So you've seen that as a significant change. You've seen both sides try to use information in the case of the Russians trying to build this narrative that what they are doing is purely reactionary, that it is in fact the United States and the Ukrainians and the Western allies who precipitated this crisis, that it was they who were in fact threatening the lives of Russian civilians, that in fact the Ukrainian, remember they talked about denazification, they talked about Ukrainian genocide, I mean just absolute lies but they were trying to use information to build a narrative that played well for them domestically. And they, the Russians thought perhaps might help them on the global stage with some of their key allies. Well, that clearly has not worked. Likewise, you've seen the West and the Ukraine try to use information as a way to refute or anticipate some of the disinformation aspects that the Russians might use. So in the United States, for example, you saw aggressive use of very classified intelligence Released early to say, look, here's the exact kind of event of events we know the Russians are contemplating. These are the things you should be looking for. This is what they're talking about, or contemplating internally. We've never done that at that kind of level, or that kind of amount, for that extended period of time before. I think it proved to be very proved to be very effective. I hope we, and I say this as an intelligence guy who, in my past, at times, you know argued, let's just make sure we continue sources and methods. Having said that, I always believe, look, if we generated acts, I'll only talk from a technical standpoint. It's a little different for my human teammates because there's a very real visceral human dimension to this that can lead to the death of sources, their interrogation, their imprisonment, not just for them, but their families. You know, Sigent, the area I focused on, tended to be largely very technical in nature. And my argument with the team always internally was, guys, I don't want to lose access either, but remember, we're here to serve a greater set of outcomes at a national level. And if we lose access, I'm confident in our ability, it might take us a while. Look, if we've gained access, we lose it, we could potentially regain it again. Let's think about the broader strategic implications of what is the benefit of potentially disclosing some of this information. And do those benefits at a strategic level outweigh the the very valid concerns about Potential impact on sources and methods. I, I always said, as intelligence professionals, we got to acknowledge that that's part of the calculus. We should be comfortable. Now we should be articulating to policymakers. So here are the implications from a sources and methods kind of perspective. Were we to lose this access? Were we to lose these kinds of insights? But in the end, hey, that's a policy decision, guys.
0: So, my last question uh, revisiting the cyber aspect of this. Uh, What does cyber spillover look like, say, from this conflict, the potential for cyber spillover? Uh, FBI and CISA uh, this past weekend just issued an alert that the malware that was released by Russia uh, on Ukraine or could be released by Russia on Ukraine could spill over to certainly other countries uh, and pose risks for the United States, uh, not to be a doom and gloomer. But uh, could this potentially foreshadow a global cyber war? I mean could it yes do i think it's likely no do i
1: hope that happens no because right now and that could change but right now i would argue the calculus of almost all the major players is i want to see potentially how cyber might help me achieve my desired end state but i also don't want to escalate because i don't want to lose control um, i don't want this to become something broader i don't want this to end up having economic second and third order impacts that go well beyond uh, potential sanctions that are being used today with respect to trying to impact Russian activity. So it is possible. At the moment, I would say it is not, it certainly won't, I think, be the intended desire. There's always the unintended. And as I said, with respect to kinetic warfare, you you always have to acknowledge, look, there's always a chance that once you actually execute something, it goes wrong and doesn't work exactly the way you want it to. Now, Petya is a perfect example of that. The Russians executed a series of actions that they thought would have impact within the Ukraine and seem to, to believe that any impact that's broader than that is likely to be pretty narrow, pretty small, and certainly acceptable. And then what happens? We get global impact. We have f- financial impact in terms of billions of dollars. Um, you know, you could see that on an even broader scale in all this. I certainly hope not. Again, it's another reason why the government is trying to argue right now. It's important we're focusing broadly as a society, as a nation, not just the government, but broadly the private sector, as well as the government. We need to be focused on cybersecurity. We need to be focused on cyber resilience right now. Let's put the work in right now so that if we see increased cyber activity, the the, the, the malware you referenced as an example, were we to see that, Let's make sure we're better positioned to try to minimize its impact. And if it were to have some level of impact, we want to make sure we've increased our ability to deal with it, to be resilient in the face of such a
2: And with that, uh, Mike, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. It's uh, always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And we really appreciate your insights and expertise, particularly for this issue. Um, we'll see what happens with this conflict. I mean, this will certainly develop and change over time. Um, but once again, thank you.
1: Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Andre. You guys have a great day. And again, to your point, the last point I would make is we're all going to have to be watching this very, very closely. There's a high potential for miscalculation here. There's a high potential for escalation. I hope that measured minds and um, with those concerns at the forefront make smart choices. And we'll see how this plays out.